Paul, it's good to be back with all of you and studying the Word this morning. I was counting and I, I think I was gone for about five weeks or at least absent from the pulpit. So it is um, with joy that I join with you in studying our Word this morning. Well, um, our elder Bob shared with us about our uh, recent retreat with Pastor Tim Cole and his family. It was definitely a joy to be under the teaching of such a godly man. Um, our beloved missionary pastor, uh, Tim Coyle, did a wonderful job in teaching us about the priorities of a God-centered Christian. Uh, the first priority is God, second, then it's family, third, then it's ministry. And um, it was in your bulletin, six of us went to the Shepherds Conference this past week, and I asked one of the men that went which teaching was a highlight for him in terms of which teaching was the most blessing, and he said... Tim Coyle's sermons on priorities. So definitely um, I agree. Uh, we were indeed in the presence of a godly man and um, we all heard who were there. We all heard God's word faithfully and powerfully proclaimed. And, and because what was preached to us was so timely, was so relevant to us, um, I really felt led that I cannot move on without addressing this issue of priorities uh, without addressing it from one more angle from the scriptures. Um, I want to spend one more sermon on this issue of priorities, but from a different angle from the scriptures. I would like to spend our time this morning addressing what threatens us from keeping our priorities as Christian men and women. We're going to look at the threat, what threatens us, but particularly one this morning, the greatest threat in terms of us keeping our priorities as maturing Christian men and women. I, I want to do this because in a way, knowing the priorities is simple. You just listen to the tapes. You go to the retreat. You read some books. Knowing the priorities that it's God first, family second, and ministry third is relatively easy. The challenge is living by them, right? It's keeping these priorities. We're having your life being submitted to these priorities. That's the challenge. It's not the knowledge. Keeping these priorities day in and day out is the issue. And there are many threats that will keep us from living by these priorities. Enemies from within, from without, that threaten us. Now some are, I don't know, it's, a laundry list, I guess. Uh, laziness is definitely a threat. Uh, a pride is a threat that will keep you from, will keep me from living, the, living out these priorities. Uh, maybe entertainment, um, wrong doctrine, so on and so on. Let me just ask you guys a question. The answer is on your outlines, but let me ask it anyways. What would you say is the number one threat that will keep you from keeping these priorities? What would you say is the clear and present threat for us as members of Cornerstone Bible Church? Well, you have the answer, right? If you get it wrong, then we talk to you afterwards. Well, I believe that the number one threat to us is a threat of materialism. The threat of materialism. Now, what is materialism? I went to the Oxford Dictionary, and it defines materialism as a theory or attitude that physical well-being and worldly possessions constitute the greatest good and highest value in life. 
That's the first definition of materialism. Second is that a great or excessive regard for worldly concerns. That's right. I agree with that definition. And I believe that is the greatest threat to believers here in Cornerstone. This is the enemy I fear the most for myself and my life as a Christian and for our church. You know, listening to Tim preach on the priorities, I was going back and forth between two polaric emotions. I was excited because it's truth, but I was also afraid because I know the enemy. I know the power that threatens us. Right. Now, why do I believe that materialism is the greatest threat to us? Six reasons. Six reasons I believe why I believe this is the greatest threat. Number one, because of the essence of materialism. Because of the essence of materialism. Materialism at its core is doctrinal. It's not external, right? It's doctrinal. Materialism at its core is an attitude that reverses these priorities. In fact, it puts God at the bottom. It puts Him last. Family second to last. Ministry third to last. And puts other things at or near the top. It is a direct enemy to biblical values. These two values, biblical Christianity and materialism, are competing values. They are at war. They are enemies. They cannot coexist in any sense of the word. The Apostle John addresses this in his first letter in 1 John 2, 15 and 16. In fact, he says that materialism is such... Uh, and is in such opposition to Christianity that the presence of materialism is a sign of an unregenerate heart. That's the extent that which he goes to. That is such is in such opposition to Christianity that materialism can be a sign, a great possible sign of an unregenerate heart, a non-Christian. He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. Why? Because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And he lists the things that are in the world that rule our hearts. Cravings of sinful man, lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has. Materialism and what he does. This does not come from the Father, but it comes from the world. Because materialism is doctrinal, because by its mindset it assigns great value to money, possessions, by the mere presence of materialism, it lowers the value of God, it lowers the value of God's word, it lowers family and lowers ministry. Just by the mere presence of materialism in our hearts. And because materialism constitutes an inordinate desire for these things, its presence competes with God for the affections of our souls, the affections of our hearts. Right? We experience that day in and day out. We don't love God as we ought, yet we love money far too much. We love things far too much. They compete for our affections. First reason I believe it is a, the greatest threat is because of the essence of materialism. Second reason is because of the subtle nature of materialism. Because of the subtle nature of materialism. It is especially dangerous because it is so subtle. It is internal. It is not external. It is so easily hidden. We can't discern this sin from without. Even from ourselves. We can't 
see it so clearly because it is so subtle. Read recently that people spend more than 50% of their time thinking about money. 50% of their lives are focused on money. How to make more, how to save more, how to spend, where to spend, so on and so on. So for many, many people, many Christians even, their lives are consumed with money. We're in a consuming society and there is no end in sight. Now turn with me to the text in Matthew 6.21. Now you might want to highlight that verse because it's so instructive to all of us. It's so insightful. Our Lord says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, now I thought that I will fix my heart on something and my money will follow. The treasure will follow. But our Lord says it's the opposite. That our hearts follow our treasure. Our hearts follow our pocketbook. Where we spend our money. Where we invest our time. What consumes our thoughts, our hearts, our affections, our desires will gravitate towards that. We are to set our affections on things above, Colossians 3.2 tells us. But when we lay up treasures on earth, Christ says our hearts will gravitate towards earthly things. Christ says the cure is practical. It's not really spiritual. It's practical in nature, verses 19 and 20. Therefore, do not store for yourselves treasures on earth, verse 20. But store for yourselves treasures in heaven. That's the practical cure for materialism, just uh, as a preview of the things to come. That's the, that's the cure. It's not, it's not spiritual in a sense, it's practical. Our hearts will follow our treasure. So if our treasure is stocks or investments or other investments or, or your job or your income or a car or clothes or jewelry, your hearts will follow. The practical way to respond to this is transfer that treasure not away from the earth towards the kingdom of God. How do we do this? By giving to God's work, giving to missions, by sacrificing for ministry, by giving your time, your effort, your energy on the Lord's work without expecting nothing in return. That is how we transfer this account. And then our hearts will follow. Now, practically, if you want to know where you are spiritually today in this area, <clears throat> the greatest reflection of your discipleship is not found in the Bible. Right. I, mean, I was shocked to see Pastor Tim Coyle bring up his Bible all tattered up, broken down, in a Ziploc bag. I thought, man, it's a sign of godliness. How much he treasures the Bible. But you know what? That's not the sign of godliness. And he would agree. It is not how much your Bible is highlighted, how much it's underlined, whether you have Greek words written next to the margins. That's not the sign of godliness. It is not even your prayer journal or even your sermon notebook. The greatest reflection of your discipleship is your checkbook. It's my checkbook. It's your credit card bill, my credit card bill. You want to know where your heart is? Look at that. With cold calculation, you can know exactly where your heart is by looking at where your treasure is. Right. Materialism is the greatest threat because of the essence of materialism, because of the subtle nature of materialism. Thirdly, because of the world we live in. Because of the, of the world you and I live in, 
An article from Money Magazine said this, in 1950, 10% of all income was spent for luxurious items, things that people don't need, entertainment, the fluff of life, just 10%. By 1980, the figure was up to 30% of a person's income was spent on luxuries. About $350 billion was spent in the 80s by Americans on things that people don't need. People don't, it's not necess necessary for life. In the last 10 years, it is moving towards 40% of our income. And that's the world we live in. And this culture, this society, instead of Christians confronting that, it has seeped into Christian culture. And we have become marginalized because we've been influenced by the culture of materialism rather than confronting it. Money Magazine concludes that not only do we consume like no other culture before, but we pursue money like no other culture. The magazine said that money has become the number one obsession of Americans. It is the new sex. It is the new high. You know, I personally saw the pervasiveness of greed in our culture several years ago when I attended one of those graduation ceremonies. They had it at a church, actually. What do they call that? Where they have like speakers come? It's not a graduation, but that what is that? Okay, it doesn't matter, right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's not a graduation, but they come, they have speakers and a lot of speakers. Anyway, they had the they had the brochure with all the students' pictures with their names, and they had their hopes and aspirations behind below their names. A, a short sentence on what they want to do after they graduate. And now I'm a child of the sixties, though I was I grew up in the 80s. I'm a child of the 60s. So I expected the idealism of, the, of youth. They want to fight poverty. They want to rescue children. They want to feed the hungry. They want to shelter the homeless. They want to uh, help solve the environmental problems. I don't know the idealism of youth. You know what I found? One after the other, I want to be a millionaire. I want to drive a Ferrari. I want to retire at 25. I want to have this, I want to have that, name after name. And I saw that in our culture, greed has become a virtue. It's become esteemed. It was seen as it's good to have that kind of mindset, to be want, to be rich, as your hope, dream, and aspiration. That's the world we live in. Materialism is a threat to us because of the world we live in, and then fourthly, because of who we are because of who we are. Beloved brothers and sisters, materialism is a unique and real threat to Cornerstone. It is not a perceived threat. It is not a threat that's going to come years from now. You know, like some threats come years from now. When our children become teenagers, whole new threat, right? <laughs> whole new loads of problems. Materialism is an imminent threat. It is a threat that, that is, is in us today to every single one of us. Why? Because all of us here are rich. All of us. There is no one poor in this room. No one. And to some degree, all of us are materialistic. And it's going to get worse. We are an upperly mobile church. Right? We're in Orange County, California. Right? California missed the recession because of its just prosperity. One of the richest sections of California is Orange County. 
And we, all of, many of us, many of you guys are upperly mobile. And it's going to get worse because of that. You will face temptations and the freedom of money that, that people just dream about. Therefore, it will just get worse. It will heighten as time goes. You know, one of my secret fears in ministry is this. You know, right now, I kind of, you know, hammer on this. I don't mean to, but I mean, it's true. One of the major conversations among brothers is NBA fantasy basketball, right? And that drives the leaders up the wall, right? Just that's how they talk about stats of these guys. Who cares? Like, this guy scored this many points, therefore your points went up. What does that matter? One of my secret fears is in 10 years, it will be the major conversation will be latest investments in stocks. That will consume our fellowship. We, we talk about, oh, two-week vacation in Swiss Alps or Vail, Colorado. Or our conversation will be, should we buy that Mercedes or that BMW? That will become a church culture of ours because so many of us are upperly mobile. I am personally never envious of any other church ministry. I go to Grace Community uh, Shepherds Conference. I talk to these other pastors. They have great churches throughout America. I love Cornerstone. I want to die here. No envy at all. If they were to ask me to come, I'd say, no, why? I love my church family. But when I hear about or read about or see churches outside of the United States, like in China, in the Philippines, where people live in the dumps, where in Russia, when I was there, there, there were men who went hungry, who had their children go hungry. When I, when I was there, one student at the Bible Institute prayed for a bed. He didn't have a bed to sleep on for him and his wife. So a church lady loaned him a bed for six months and she wanted it back, but that was her service to him. When I hear about such churches, I, I got to confess to you guys, I'm a bit envious. There's a longing in my heart to maybe minister in such a place where there's no distractions and the encumbrances of, of material things. Where there's a pure devotion. Maybe it's easier to be pure in a culture like that to the Lord and to the Lord's work. It's an imminent threat because of who we are. Fifthly, materialism is a threat because it is a life-consuming threat. A life-consuming mindset, a life-consuming threat. In Matthew 6, 22 through 23, the Lord says, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? The context here is about materialism. It's about the competing values of Christ and money. Right, verse 24, the principle behind these verses, verses 22 and 23, is simply this. Materialism is a disease that affects the whole body. It's a life-consuming threat, a life-consuming disease. Like a drop of poison contaminates the entire glass of water, so materialism contaminates the whole of man. It dims his vision. It makes him short-sighted. He cannot see heaven no longer, nor can he perceive the needs that, are, that surround him in the church and in the world. It's not some minor flaw in a person's thinking. It is like a virus that has entered into one's bloodstream. It detrimentally affects the whole person. The whole person. It is powerful. 
it can consume a person's life. Right? I mean, people don't change easily. Especially later on in life, we're all kind of set in our ways. But you know what changes people? It's so powerful. It consumes a person's life. Money. Money changes people. Alex Montoya was saying, he had a quote, Money does strange things to people. It changes their personality. It changes their character. It changes the inner person. The influence of money is almost that of the Holy Spirit. Now, you know, we know what doctrine is not true, but I mean, the Holy Spirit changes a man or a woman, right? Well, money does a similar thing. It has that kind of influence, that kind of power. It changes the inner person. It's a life-consuming threat. Well, it's a threat because of the essence, subtle nature, the world we live in, who we are, life-consuming. Number six, materialism is a destructive attitude. It's a destructive attitude. Or you might say, James, you know, why are you getting all worked up about this? You know, it's, it's not the American dream. Yeah, I know it's the American dream, but is that a Christian's dream? Right? Is that God's will for us? I know it's the American dream, right? But why are you getting all worked up? It's just a harmless pastime, a harmless preoccupation? No, not true. Materialistic obsession gets very ugly. It is not a harmless pastime. It is a destructive attitude. Verse 24 of chapter 6. Christ says, no one can serve two masters. Period. Ontological impossibility. You cannot serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and serve the other. Or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Those two cannot coexist. You will love the one and hate. Despise. The other. You cannot serve both God and money. In the simplest form, either God is your master or money is your master. It is not a degree thing. In God's perspective, what he sees is black and white. Either you're my servant or you're the servant of mammon. A servant, a servant of money, of, of your possessions. It is a destructive pathology. Right. This is what our Lord is saying. Materialism is dangerous, indeed destructive. It is a spiritually toxic attitude. And for these six reasons, they are a clear and present threat to the church culture and the Christians at Cornerstone. Well, let's look at materialism briefly. Let's look at what is and what isn't materialism. Uh, let me ask you, what are the signs of materialism? What are the marks of someone who's a materialist, who's materialistically oriented? You might say a big house, they have a five bedroom house, they're materialistic. If they have a car that's, that costs over $12,500, <laughs> then they're expensive, then they're materialistic. If they have a fancy wardrobe, they have more than one polo shirt, or if they have lots of jewelry, so on and so on. No, these aren't signs of materialism, right? These aren't signs. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. I want to briefly spend our time in 1 Timothy 6 to show that these aren't signs of materialism. 1 Timothy 6, 17, Paul tells Timothy, instruct those who are rich in this present world, point one, not to be conceited. He says, there are rich people in this church at Ephesus where Timothy is pastoring. Those that are rich, he tells them, instruct them not to be poor. He doesn't say, give away all, all you have. He says, don't be conceited. There's no command to be poor. In fact, there's no virtue of being poor. If you think being poor is godly, 
then you be godly your way <laughs> and I'll be godly mine. But there's nothing in the scripture that, that makes a virtue out of poverty. So instruct those who are rich, Paul says, don't be conceited. That's point one. Why? Because if you're rich, God gave you that wealth. If you're smart, if you can do accounting, computers, math, or astronomy, whatever, God gave you that gift. God gave you that ability. So don't be proud because it's from God, number one. Number two, tell them not to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Our hope, our confidence, our trust is not in money but on God. I think Enron is a good uh, example for all of us. Right? And thirdly, tell them to do good, verse 18, to be rich not in money, but that money is a tool for service, for Christian work. So to be rich, to be abounding in the work of God, because God is not impressed with our, our portfolio, God is not impressed with our income, God is impressed with what we do, with our good works. So... Materialism is not having a large house, car, jewelry. That doesn't mean you're materialistic. Having money is not, not it at all. It has no connection with materialism. Remember, money is not the root of all evil. What is? Right? Michael Ramirez kind of changed you guys, right? What is the root of all evil? It's not money, it's the love of money. Right? Love of money. The love of it. Right? Therefore, it tells us that materialism is an attitude. It's not external, it is an internal. Let's do a personal inventory and see where we stand. Let's go through seven signs of materialism, internal signs that if you have succumbed to this temptation of materialism. Number one, anxiety over money. Anxiety over money. You know, materialism and worry goes hand in hand. You look at Matthew 6, What's, what's the verses that follow? It's all about worry, right? Trust in God. Look at sparrows. They did not labor or spin. And God closed the lilies of the field and the sparrows. How much more should we trust in God? Materialism and worry go hand in hand. Right. So number one side is anxiety over money, worry over money. What do I mean by this? It means that you no longer manage your money. Money is managing you and your life. The decisions are not dictated by the word of God or the wisdom of God. Your decisions are being dictated by finances and your worry over finances. They are ruling your life. You're concerned about it. You're worried about it. You discuss it constantly. Right? Now, you won't do this at church, but at home with your closest friends, your husband and wife. Right? We're just constantly talking about this. You argue about it. You get mad about it. You're always calculating money. It's in your mind. It's an, it is an anxiety. It occupies your thoughts. It occupies your anxieties. It distracts you from working for God. Right? We all know people like this, right? They're so worried and consumed with money, they have no time for God. They have no room for God. They have no room for family. And they have no room for ministry. This is the danger to our faith, but brothers and sisters. This is a threat to our walk with God. Remember the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, 22? What choked out that seed of faith? What caused that person to walk away from the Lord? It was not some heinous sin. It was not some great catastrophe, Matthew 13, 22. But the worries of this life 
and the deceitfulness of wealth choked the seed and made it unfruitful. Right. So first sign is anxiety over money. Second sign is covetousness. Covetousness. You envy what others have. Right. You lust for something that somebody else has and you're covetous. Right. You're not content with what you have, your situation, your lot in life. You become tired of things quickly and you desire, you're envious of others and what they have. The third word is selfishness. Right. You're selfish. Right. Simply define, I'll put it this way, you have no joy in giving. You have no joy in giving to the Lord, giving to your family, giving to ministry, giving to the Lord's work. You give for external reasons. You give because you're calculating now I'll get an equal thing back from this person, right? Or you give to maintain your reputation perhaps. Or you give to please man, but in your heart you have no joy in giving because at the core you live for yourself, you're selfish. Fourth word, I guess the word would be greediness. Greediness. You want more just to have more. You know it won't satisfy, you know you don't need it, but you just want it. You want something for, pri for pride's sake. You, you shop for pride. Right? Just because of your view of yourself, I gotta have this quality of, of a car, or this quality of clothes, or this quality of a computer, for pride's sake. You want, you want something because you want others to be envious of you. That is your motivation. You want something even though that's beyond your need. Fifth word is the word discontent. Discontent. You're not joyful. You're not satisfied. You're not rejoicing. You're not grateful. Instead, you are discontent before God. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 8, if we have food and clothing, the basic necessities of life, we will be content with that. That's contentment. But you are not content. I'm not content. And that's a sign of materialism. Sixth word is unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness. Now what do I mean by that? I mean that in the spiritual dimension materialism will always show up in a lack of interest and in a lack of faithfulness to serving Christ. You are not concerned with time in the word. You are not concerned with prayer. You're not concerned with investing in uh, God's people. You're not concerned with fellowship or using your spiritual gifts or evangelism or serving Christ. Why? Because you're so distracted and immersed with material things. That's a dead giveaway for materialism. A dead giveaway. And one is consumed in their own little world. The world of amassing things and consuming things has consumed them. Now you see people like this. They check their stocks like five times a day. Right? They check the value of their home every other week. They look for the latest sales, discounts. They spend hours and hours thinking of what to buy next. Right? They spend hours thinking about what their next paycheck or next year's paycheck or five, paycheck five years from now and what, what they will buy then. 
And because of that, they are unfaithful to serve Christ and to give their life to others. And lastly, the last word would be idolatry. That's the core of it, is it not? Idolatry. I mean, if you're sacrificing yourself for material possessions, for money, you've committed the sin of idolatry. At any point, you violate the word of God because of money, and at that point, you've committed idolatry. Meaning you cheat, you steal, you lie to acquire material things. You take shortcuts, you get, rich, you get involved in get-rich schemes, you play the lottery, you gamble to get money the easy way. You break God's law to get money, that at that point you are worshiping money. And you have worshiped money rather than God. A sober reminder during tax season, right? We're in tax season. If you knowingly violate the word of God, integrity of scripture for the sake of money, at that point you have committed idolatry. This is a real and imminent threat to all of us here including me, well no, especially me. It's a threat to my heart, as to everyone here. I'm discovering more and more uh, a true barometer of one's maturity in Christ. It's not how, how well they know doctrine. It's not how faithful they are to church service, or how neatly they write their sermon notes, or how long they've been at church. More and more I'm discovering in my own life and the lives of other believers that the true barometer, the best barometer of one's Christian maturity is where you spend your money, how you spend your money, your attitude towards money. A Christian's attitude towards money reveals really the true depth of one's discipleship. And if your Christianity doesn't affect your relationship with money, your attitude towards money. You need to question your Christianity. Because a definitive mark of true Christianity is how one relates to this world. Well, we're going to make a transition here. I I think I pointed out as best as I can that materialism is is a serious threat to our priorities for us keeping it. I've done the best as I can to outline the signs of materialism in our hearts. Now, how do we overcome materialism? All right, how do we overcome? I, mean, I want to spend the rest of our time. I still got six pages of notes to go, so get comfortable, right? Uh, how do we overcome materialism? We need a game plan. We can't just mindlessly go in and try to overcome materialism. Uh, we ought not to fool ourselves. We need a game plan. Every Christian who is serious about living a life of God-centered priorities must, number one, have a financial plan. I want to get specific from here on out. Have a financial plan. You and I need a game plan. We must have a strategy. We must have goals. And we must have plans down on paper. It's not just in our minds. You have that plan somewhere in my hard drive. No, it must be down on paper. A major reason you want to have a financial plan is so that you live below your means. You have a set income and you want to write down what that income is and have a budget where it's below what you're bringing in. So that you don't resort to other things to live a certain lifestyle. 
Financial planning is biblical. It is a sound means to good stewardship, to freedom from materialism. Younger women, younger men, I would, I would call you to seek counsel from older women and men in this area. Right? Young, young women, go to older women and talk to them about this area. Young men, go to, your, go to older men and talk to them about financial planning. Older men, older women during that time talk about three things. Talk about their time in the Word. How much time are you spending in the Word? Right? That's the first thing, one of the first things you ought to address in your time in shepherding younger men, older women, younger women. Secondly, talk about their lust, their purity, their holiness, what they're exposing themselves to. And third thing is money. Help them plan. Help them develop a financial plan for their lives. Secondly, commit to the responsibility of discipline. Right. Commit to the responsibility of discipline. Right. If we have the financial plan down, discipline is what is required to make those plans into actions. Right. We must follow through on our good intentions. Godliness requires discipline. 1 Timothy 4, 3. 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 8. Good intentions, having right priorities are useless if you don't have the discipline to translate them into actions, if you don't have the discipline, take drastic action. Beg of you guys, ask for help from others. You know what? My spending is out of control. My debt is out of control. Right? Talk to a seminary grad, not from our church. You guys don't know him. $35,000 in credit card debt. Have you talked to anyone about this? No. No wonder. Right? Talk to people. Right? Ask for help. I need accountability in this area. If you don't have the discipline, cut your credit cards. Throw them away. Burn them. Right? Thirdly, confess your sins in this area to others. Confess your sins. That's out of control. Third, thirdly, embrace the privilege of work. Embrace the privilege of work. I mean, work, work, work. All work is honorable to God. If you're not working, what does Paul say? You should not eat. Period. Right? I believe that. If you're not working, you shouldn't eat. So, work. Right? Number four, save for the future. Save for the future. It's, it's biblical. God directed Joseph to save for the future. Genesis 41-35. Saving for the future shows wisdom, revealed in Proverbs. Saving for the future is responsible stewardship. To meet both the predictable and unpredictable needs of your family. 1 Timothy 5.8 If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. If you're not saving... To provide for your parents in their old age. If you're not saving to provide for your children when they grow up for college. If you're not saving for your spouse or for your family or your relatives. And at that time because you spent it all on material things. And you can't support them. Paul says you have denied the faith. You're worse than a non-Christian. Worse than a non-Christian. Worse than an unbeliever. Right? 
These are four principles on how to um, keep God-centered priorities. Um, let me go on to guidelines for giving. I learned something this week on giving, and I, I'm willing to share it with you. This wasn't intended to be a sermon on giving at all, but uh, I think it, it worth, is worth, worthy of our attention. Guidelines for giving. Number, first of all, tithing was an Old Testament command for the Jewish people. It was a theocracy. It was their income tax, as you will. Actually, there were three tithes, about 25% of their income. So it wasn't 10%. The tithe does not apply to us. That word tithe is never used in the New Testament as a command for the church or a regulation in the church. To insist on a tithe is really a disobedience of the New Testament. Right? Compulsory tithing in the church is unbiblical. Right? Giving the tithe is a hindrance to the New Testament guideline for giving. And what is that? It is proportional giving. The command in the New Testament is proportional giving. Right. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 16.2. Here Paul talks about the New Testament guideline on giving to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 16.2. Paul says, And I be virgin, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money, what does it say? In keeping with his income. I like what the Living Bible, the Living Version says, 1 Corinthians 16, 2. On the Lord's day, each of you should put aside something that you have earned during the week and use it for offering. The amount depends on how much the Lord has helped you learn. It's, your giving is to be proportional to your income. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 8, 12 through 15. Paul reiterates this in, in, in a different way. In 2 Corinthians 8, 12 through 15, Paul tells the church, if the willingness is there, if there's a willingness for you to give to the Lord, the gift is acceptable according to what one has. Our giving should be proportional to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Verse 13, our desire is not that others might be relieved when you are hard-pressed, but there might be equality. There might be equality. Let me explain this, guys. Many believers give 10%, and they don't even consider that, for some of you, you're giving too much. 10% is way too much. And for others, it's way too little. Right. Not only is it Disobedience to demand 10% from all believers. Uh, because it is an un... It, it's, it's disobedience because it's unbiblical. And it is an unequal burden. It is an unequal burden. Right? One person giving 10% will be too much. They're sowing too generously. While the other is too little. Let me illustrate this. Christian A makes $1,000 a month. Right? He gives... Uh, let's say Christian A makes $100 a month. He gives 10%. He lives on $90 a month. Right? He's struggling. How do you live on $90 a month? Christian B makes $1,000 a month, gives $100. Bucks. He lives, is living on $900 a month, barely making it. Christian C makes $100,000 a month, gives 10%, lives on 
living on $90,000 a month, thinking, hey, I've given my 10%. There is no command for a percentage in the New Testament. It is proportional giving. So if you're struggling, and if, you're not, if God has not allowed it to you, a certain income to, to support your family, support yourself, or food and clothing, necessities of life, maybe 10% is too much for you. Maybe it should be 5%. Maybe it should be 1%. Maybe it should be 0.1%. Now if God has blessed you, maybe it should be 15, 20, 30%. Let me give you some, uh, the guidelines for New Testament giving. Guidelines for New Testament giving. 2 Corinthians 9.7. Please turn with me. 2 Corinthians 9.7. We have six words, six guidelines for New Testament giving. Number, the first word is purposefully. Purposefully. We are to give from careful and prayerful planning. 9.7 says, let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart. There's a sense there, planned beforehand. Right? Preparation, which you purpose in your heart, let each man give. So it's purposefully. Second word is joyfully, for God loves a cheerful giver. We're to give cheerfully. Thirdly, 1 Corinthians 16.2 tells us regularly, on the first day of every week, it should be regular. A pattern of giving. Fourthly, it should be personally. 1 Corinthians 6.2, let each of you, each Christian has a personal responsibility to give. Fifthly, systematically, 1 Corinthians 6.2, they're to set aside a sum of money. It's not haphazard. It's not impulsive. It's systematically setting aside. And then finally again, proportionally. There is no compulsory giving. You should set aside for, for families, set aside a time for you and your family, you and your wife, to talk about giving. If you're a single person, set aside a time to prayerfully consider what you want to purpose in your heart to give with a joyful heart, regularly, systematically, personally, and proportionally to the income that God has allotted to you. Again, for some of you, 10% is too much. For others, it's not enough. To whom should we give? Um, four places to give to the local church. Number one, other organizations and individuals, missionaries, to the work of missions abroad. Thirdly, fellow believers in need. That's part of offering. Right? That, that's, that's equality here. There's someone who's struggling, financially in need. We are to give to fellow believers in need. And finally, unbelievers in need. The priorities that Pastor Tim Cole set down for us are lifelong priorities. God, family, and then ministry and church. If we want to deal a death blow to materialism, these applications ought to be in all our hearts. For what is again the clear and present threat to, to these priorities is materialism. May we, may we live by these priorities set down before us. Let's pray.